Okay. Hey, everybody. Hey, um, I'm a little under the weather, and um, also there are some sermon issues this morning, so just you're going to have to be a little bit of an active listener. I'm not going to actually say my sermon's bad. You can be the judge of that, but you'll have to be a little bit more of an active listener this morning, I think, because— and if I don't, maybe if I don't make any sense, if I'm into it, just come up and just kind of escort me down to the pew there. Um, that'd be great. Uh, let me say one more thing. If you're new this week, um, this is the third week in a series, so I'd really encourage you to go back and have a look at the other two sermons online on our website, because I'm just going to assume some stuff, and you might be like, well, why are you saying that? And it's because I've already preached two sermons on this. So um, I'm try- trying to understand where you're coming from, but uh, you may find I've not taken that completely into account. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of an extended introduction on something that may seem like it has nothing to do with this passage, and then I'm going to focus in on this passage. So hang with me for a few minutes if you don't know why I'm talking about what I start talking about right now, okay? Great. There was a nod back there. I saw it. Okay. Um, uh, One of the things that you and I probably agree on is that jealousy is for the most part a bad and ugly thing. Probably agree on that. Um, and that most of the time it comes out of insecurity or domination, or in most cases, both. Um, and it, it sort of betrays a sort of illegitimate feeling of ownership over something or somebody. And so it's, it's a really, really ugly thing. And um, my first experience with this in Living Color was in junior high school dating. Um, I mean, you can see this obviously anywhere, but I mean, I just remember having these intense feelings of jealousy towards other young men who were going out with girls who didn't know that I existed. But yet, I still really felt that way, and I knew that that was par for the course in my hormone-filled, emotional state era with these peers of mine. Um, And so, when I was younger, a younger man, kind of coming out of junior high school, I sort of vowed that I was never going to be jealous because jealousy was weakness. And so I was going to listen to, you know, if you want to be with me, great. If you don't, fine. I'm not emotionally involved in all of that, and I'm not going to be jealous. I'm not going to show jealousy. I'm not going to feel jealous. Jealousy is just a waste of time, and it really is just weakness, and so I'm never going to feel it, period. And that's interestingly, spiritually speaking, something—probably the only thing that Oprah and I ever agreed on— um, other than that puppies are cute, is that um, I, remember, I remember hearing her say on a show that that was when she lost her evangelical faith. Was she was sitting in church, in an African-American church in downtown Chicago, and, this, and the preacher was reading out the King James Bible about God being a jealous God. And, and, him, and he was preaching that God is a jealous God. And she had, the, she had that same sort of background feeling as me, that jealousy is weakness, that it comes from insecurity and domination, that it's, um, that it's fundamentally an illegitimate feeling of ownership, that it's, it's not really helpful. And um, she basically said on, this, on one of her shows one time that that just showed how narrow and confused most people's understanding of God was and how the God of the Bible can't really be the God that really exists. And I, and I remember um, when I heard that, it was much later, but I remember feeling that way. I remember hearing that that was the case and thinking that was really confusing. But in the first six books of the Bible, it says six times, very pointedly, that God, the God of the Bible, 
is a jealous God. Um, probably the most in-your-face one is Exodus 34, 14. It says this, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. That's pretty direct, right? So it's so, so, so openly true about him that you can count it as one of his names. Just like his name is mercy. His name is provision. His name is jealous. Right? Unless you think that's some kind of like Old Testament thing and you want to split up the Testaments and be like, that's kind of— In James 4, 4 to 5, it says this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world— becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he has caused to live in us envies intensely? I mean, think about that. Like, envy is, like, is always a pejorative, right? I mean, can you think of any time you use the word envy positively? Yeah, well, I was very envious the other day, and your friend's like, that's fantastic. But yet, the word jealousy, which is virtually always a pejorative, and the word envy, which is virtually always a pejorative, is used about God repeatedly in the Bible. Why? I mean, when James used the word envy, he knew darn well that nowhere in the Bible did that refer to a good thing. He knew that. He kind of knew the Bible. And so I think that the only reason that I can think of is that it's intended to be evocative. It's supposed to give you this emotional—it's supposed to hit you emotionally. You're supposed to be like, envy, jealousy. That's, that's really serious. And I think one of the things um, that we're going to need to realize is that we need a definition of jealousy, and we need to be able to distinguish between legitimate or appropriate and inappropriate jealousy. I mean, what, what is jealousy? I mean, jealousy is essentially an emotional response to an attack on a relationship or a member of that relationship. That's what jealousy essentially is. It's an emotional reaction to an attack on a relationship or to a person in that relationship. Now, if that's what jealousy is, is that always bad? I remember um, one time I was in seminary, and I had come home, and I was having this discussion with Lexi. We'd been, so we'd been married less than three years. And we were having this conversation about a friend of mine who was very openly jealous in a relationship, which I thought, of course, at this point in my life, showed his weakness and immaturity and insecurity and so on that was now coming out and wasn't that silly looking. And I remember Lexi's response to that. She said, she said, you know, sometimes I wish you were more jealous. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about, baby? You've got it made. You know, I mean, doesn't every woman want a totally self-secure guy that you can be flirting with some other dude and he doesn't even seem to care? Like, I mean, isn't because he's just so secure and what? I, I mean, and apparently the answer is no to that question. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think about it this way: How should you feel when you overhear somebody lying to your kid? Should there be no emotional response to that at all? Because if it is, then you're insecure. Or um, how should you feel when you look across the room and you can see by the body language of another woman that she's definitely flirting with your husband? How, sh how should you feel? 
How should you feel when you, when you can tell by the way your wife is talking about work that one of the men she works with is slowly seducing her by making you look bad and himself look good and interested and attentive all the time? How should you feel about that? Should you just be like, whatever, I'm secure. I mean, what, what would it be like if God portrayed himself as moral in the Bible, but he had no moral feelings whatsoever? That he said, this is right and this is wrong, and it matters. It's massively important, but yet when anything goes wrong with any of that, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Do you see how inconsistent that would be? Do you see how emotionally ridiculous that is? How not normal it is? Um, this last week I was in Orlando at this conference on church planting. Not because I'm going to plant a church, I assure you. Um, I, was, I, I was invited to learn how to be a church planting coach. Um, and uh, there was this guy named Chuck who was teaching the seminar, and he said that he was a pastor in a church in Chicago. It was doing really well, and— um, he, you, know, he, you know, he was like Mr. Successful Pastor. And he was at youth ministry one night. And he and his wife were there. And the, his, his parents, his wife's a playful person. And they were, she was messing around with these students. And his wife threw a ball, like one of these like dodgeball ball, back when dodgeballs were allowed to have air in them. And it hit this kid in the head, right? Didn't hurt the kid. No injury. But it just hit this other kid in the head, right? And that's not where she was aiming, but sometimes that happens when you're throwing balls around in a youth room. And he said, um, the kid's father was there, and he was an elder in the church, which means that you're a big deal, for those of you not familiar with what that means. And so, and what happened was, this elder went over to his wife and just blew his stack, just screaming at her. And Chuck said, you know what I did? Nothing. He didn't take it personally. She should be able to defend herself, right? It wasn't until a few years later in counseling when everybody was sobbing and he had lost, his ministry was coming apart at the seams, that he found out that that wounded her so deeply that they weren't ever sure they'd ever get over it. That he was so stoic, he was so not jealous. He was not angered by an attack on his relationship and, one, and someone in it that he was, he was, he, he didn't take it personally. He didn't blow up. And it cut her so deep. Because he, he wouldn't defend her. He didn't see it as his job to protect her. He wasn't jealous for her. And she took that as, you don't care. And here, listen, it's taken, me, it's taken me 15 years to come around on this. But I'm to the point in my life now where I believe that the people who believe that the jealousy of God in the Bible is one of the Bible's biggest liabilities are just wrong. They're people who believe that the fact that the Bible portrays God as a jealous God in this way, um, in relationship to sin, in relationship to how he relates to us, and we relate to him, they see that as a huge liability of the Bible. It makes God look ugly and unattractive and um, you know, we're beyond that. We're modern people. We realize we shouldn't act that way. And, 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 and there, was a, there was a long time where I just kind of was like, well, it's not that big a liability. You know what I think now? I think that the jealous, 
jealousy and enviousness of the Spirit of God is actually the ultimate vindication of the Bible. And it's the greatest critique of bad religion that has ever been formulated by anything and anyone. That's what I think. Because if you believe that, then God's jealousy jealousy is the strongest possible ground for the constant renewal and rejuvenation of real faith. His critique, just simply by being jealous, a jealous God, is a critique of bad religion that is better than Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, and Foucault put together. Because what it means is God is absolutely incapable of having a fake or manipulative relationship, period. That's what it means. And what is necessary for the constant rejuvenation and rebuilding and reforming of faith? The belief that fake doesn't work. The belief that when you engage with God in a fake way or in a manipulative way, it doesn't make him happy. It infuriates him. It's like coming home late and bringing your wife flowers when she knows there's a mistress. The flowers make you worse off, not better off. Make your religious placations and sacrifices. Offer whatever you want. It just infuriates him more. It doesn't get you in better. You see, the jealousy of God can look religion in the face and be like, it's a liability. See, and if God wasn't jealous in this sense, that wouldn't be the case. It would be generally reasonable that you might be able to be fake. It would be generally reasonable that you might be able to manipulate God. The the idea is there. Humans have always believed that. That's what this passage is all about, right? It says, you bring sacrifices, right? You bring sacrifices. What do you think their status is? Do you think that your holy sacrifice can make holy your faithless life? Right? That's what he means. You take consecrated meat and you touch unconsecrated food. Does it become consecrated? No. But if you touch a dead body and you come and you touch what would otherwise be clean, what happens? All of it's defiled, right? He's like, that's what happens. Faithlessness destroys the sacrifice. You can't fake it. It's impossible. The jealousy of God is not the great liability of Christianity. It is the ultimate and total vindication of the faith, proving that there can be no false religion. There can be no manipulation of God. There can be no fakeness that works. And the solution is not to get rid of faith. But the solution is to come to God honestly. And that, I mean, that's exactly what this passage is all about. This passage is all about basically God saying to these people, hey, let's deal with the issue and then mark the day. Let's deal with the real issue. The not not this issue, not this behavioral issue, not this or that. Let's deal with this real heart issue because it's the only issue there can ever be with God. And then, when it's dealt with, I want you to mark the day because our life together will be fundamentally different after that day. 
Because there will be a real relationship at that point. And the intensity of emotion that is referred to by God's jealousy is the same intensity of emotion by which God pours out his compassion on people who are really repentant, who honestly want to give their whole heart to him. He quickly dives in and helps. That's why he says, you mark this day. Because it's going to be different after this day. So I want to take you through a little bit of that in Haggai. And then I want to kind of go from here. The most important bit of language in the whole book of Haggai is this one. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Because the issue of the book of Haggai, though it's very easy to get confused that this is about building a temple, it's not really mostly about building a temple. It's about their hearts. In fact, the, li- the, mo- the more literal translation of consider your ways is set your heart upon your path. Take your heart, your inner emotional life, and you look at your life. Look at what it says about who you are. You see, all the, all the interactions God has with these people are all basically interactions meant to say, do you see what this thing you're doing says about who you are? So, for example, is God primarily upset that they've built their own houses and that God's house remains in ruin in chapter 1? Well, not primarily. What, what he's saying is, how can that be? Do you see what this says about you? Do you see what it says about you that everything that matters to me, the, the very thing I've specifically said, hey, do this. Nothing. It's rubble. It hasn't even started. And then your house is doing great. Do you see what that says about you? Do you see how this isn't honest between you and us? It's not honest, right? He goes to chapter 2, and they've they've started to build this temple, and it's not going to be great. And so they're not going to be successful. And so they're, they're losing heart. And he comes and he says, look, don't you see what you're saying? What you're saying is you can get motivation from your success, but you can't get it from my pleasure over your obedience or my presence. That doesn't motivate you. Don't you see that? And the minute success looks like it's beyond you, you're ready to give up. Think about what that means about your heart. Set your heart upon your ways. Look at what it means. It means that I don't motivate you. I don't motivate you. Winning motivates you, but I don't motivate you. Work. And it says work because I'm going to be with you, Right? And I'm going to bring my own kind of success about this. And it might look worse, but it's going to be better, right? But then it gets to this passage. And what, one of the things that's important about this passage is that after 20 years of inaction, these people had not lost their religion. They had only lost their faith. Because they're still doing sacrifices. They still thought of themselves as the people who were going to build the temple someday. You know, or the people who were kind of getting at it now, or, or the people that made sacrifices. They had plenty of religion. They did lots of religious practices that they thought would get them in good with God. But, they, but God was saying, yeah, but you lost your faith. I mean, you don't—you think this is going to work? And, and think about what that means. I'm, there, I don't know if you've seen the, the later—the version of the movie Luther that came out not that long ago with Ralph Fiennes playing Luther— there's this great section in it where, okay, Luther's this bombastic guy, and the, the, the Roman church at the time really wanted to kill him. 
And, but there was this prince named Frederick the Wise that protected him. He was a very shrewd man. He, he just would, he'd flex, and he'd do this, he'd just do it, and, but he just kept Luther alive. And there was this point at which um, the Pope sent him a gift in order to get him to allow him access to Luther. And it was worth, I think it was like 500 ducats. It was worth, I don't know, $200,000, a million dollars maybe. And it was a gift from the Pope. And Frederick the Rise's response was to write a really nice letter and to send um, money, more money than the rose was worth. And then he sent that he, he told he told this guy to, to give that to the Pope. And then he said, and he broke down into tears, and he said, he thought he could buy me that cheaply. And he was hurt by that. That the Pope thought that he would sell Luther, that he would sell what he believed was the truth, that he would just sell it for this rose thing. And he was offended by it. And it was a gift. It was a gift from the Pope. But that wasn't—the effect was not joy. The effect was tears, because he thought, how, how easy he thought he could buy me. That's, that's what God is saying in this passage to his people. He's saying, he's saying this is how I respond to your sacrifices. How, how cheap they think I am. They think I'm some kind of cheap hawker. And they go away and they think that I'm impressed by this, that I'm going to bless them, and that I love this, and that we're together, and I'm for them, and they're for me, and they treat me like some kind of prostitute. And I've given them everything, and I would give them even more. And he's basically saying that's what religion does. And, he's, and, and God is saying, don't you see what that says about you? You think you can just buy me. You think you can give me some trinket, and it, it's going to make things different. You, you, that you'll give me almost anything but you. And the only thing I've ever asked for, or ever wanted, or could ever deserve, is you. Is your heart totally given to me totally leaning on me, trusting in me to give you from my hand everything that you need. But you're going to give me the—you're going to pour out the blood of some little animal, and you think that, that what that's going to do in me is, oh, that's great. Oh, you guys love me so much. And, and so he, he looks at people and says, look, you've got to deal with the issue. The issue is always your heart. Put your heart upon your path. Consider carefully your ways. It says it like six times in two pages. Unless it would be confusing to say, well, but yeah, but Nick, it's always about this kind of stuff. Yeah, but there was another prophecy they received. If you turn one page over to the book of Zechariah, there was another page they got, another prophecy they got at this time. Before they got prophecy three, probably, it's from Zechariah, and it was Zechariah's first prophecy to them. I'm going to read verses two to six. It says this. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. No, there's no mention of the temple. 
or the sacrifices or anything else. He sends this young whippersnapper, Zechariah, alongside Haggai to preach directly to exactly what the problem is. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, who the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decree, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? And then listen to what these people said, because this is important. Then they, this is the people of Israel, then they repented and they said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve. Just as he determined to do. You see what they're saying? Is they're saying, they're looking back on not building the temple and being enamored with the success of it and not having it and then the sacrifices and that they'd really lost their, they hadn't lost religion but they'd totally lost their faith and then they see what's, what's happened here and Zechariah comes and he says this he says about your heart return him and they go that's right he's right he's right we, you know, this is exactly what we deserve it's not even what we deserve we deserve worse than this and the, God has done exactly what we should have expected. He did said exactly what we should have known all along he would do. Why would we think anything different than this? He, he told us he would do this. But one of the things you see in their repentance is that there's— do you see how there's no more religion in it? There's, there's no deal-making in it. See how there's no deal-making? There's no more pleading— there's no more, yeah, I've done wrong, but if you, I'll do this if you'll just do this. There's none of that. It's totally resigning to whatever God is going to do to them. They're done. They just realize they're done. They have nothing more to say. And they just say, this is, we, we had this coming a long way. This was, came a long way off. This is, God is totally right. And one of the things that's really interesting about that phrase is that that's one of the phrases that comes up a few times in the Bible, and there's something that God does every time that happens. He rushes to people who say that and believe that. He rushes to them. And, and, and some of them not very good people, like Rehoboam, who set up idols intentionally to infuriate God. God judges him, and there's a point where Rehoboam goes, God's right. And immediately, God sends a prophet and says, thank you. And he, he moves in a different direction. He rushes to people who will just return to him. Honestly. So let me just say two quick applications of this. The first is... Um, that you, you see, this, is, this means that the whole message is exactly the same for irreligious and religious people. Ultimately, irreligious people are, they may not even believe in it, but they are practically avoiding this statement. Return to me, and I'll return to you. When I was irreligious, I just ran from that. I didn't want to hear it, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to consider it, didn't want to talk about whether or not it could be right. I just ran from it. Religious people are just replacing it. 
God says, return to me, and I'll return to you. And religious people, we just make a counteroffer. That's what we do. How about something else other than my heart? How about some set of practices, some number of things I say, that I'll do this and not that, that I'll keep certain set of rules, that I'll whatever. It's the same ultimate thing, and that's one of the reasons why the gospel can be for everybody. Um, Secondly, I think it's important to recognize that it's supposed to be terrifying. It's supposed to—I mean, it it shouldn't look easy. I mean, it isn't easy to give your heart fully to God, to stop playing any other game, to stop trying to make any other deals, to to not reserve any reserve whatever, to not have second and third options, to, to really lean all of the weight of your trust into God is terrifying. It's always going to be terrifying. And thirdly about this is, if you decide to say what these people did, the Lord Almighty has done to me exactly what my deeds deserve. I have—I'm not going to make any more bets. I'm not going to—I just—you're right. God, you're right. How do I give myself to you so that you'll give yourself to me? How do I return to you so you would return to me? And, and you just—you trust in Jesus. Do, do not be surprised if things get worse before they get better. Don't be surprised if immediately things get worse. Because, because you need that. You, you, need a te- you need that testing to make sure that even this return isn't just another game. That your game isn't just, well, my game will be to be humble this time. It's like the guy on his fifth affair who finally says, okay, I'm going to act really repentant. And that'll get her. Um... One of the things you need to know about the people in Haggai is, so they start building this temple. Well, 20 years earlier, the emperor of the Babylonian Persian area basically wrote a letter and said, these people cannot build anymore. Shut it down under my decree and do it right now. And that was the standing law for all of Israel. And so when these guys started building again, they were building in direct defiance of an on-the-books, everybody-had-a-copy royal decree. It was treason. And they knew it. But God said to start building, and they did. And not but a couple months later, um, the trans-Euphrates governor shows up with his people and says, Who said that you could build? And he takes names. Okay? Now, I don't know if you realize what you get when you get convicted of treason in the Persian Empire, but it's something like they get a piece of wood, they sharpen the top of it, they bury it in the ground, and then they drop you on it. And they just wait an hour to a week till you die. Um, it's not sweet. And, and the trip to Babylon and back, if it goes well, is 10 months. It says in the book of Ezra that when Ezra came from Babylon, it took him five months because the Lord was with him. Not a short journey. So what that means is from when these governors came and took names to when they found out what was going to happen to them was probably ten months. Ten months of, at any minute, people could ride up on horses hand the decree of the emperor over, which is impale these people on sticks, and they were all going to be killed. Ten months from after this prophecy. 
They're building a temple. And it said the Lord is with them because they were allowed to keep building until the decree came back. So for 10 months, they're actually giving themselves holy God. They're doing the one thing God said, do this. And they're building this temple, and they're terrified. I mean, this court case has already gone down. We know how it ends. It ends with, these are a historically rebellious people. They should never be allowed to do anything. Do not let them rebuild this. Right? That was the last law on the books. On top of that, the, the verse 18 and 19 in Haggai chapter 2 says this, Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? The here's the implication. He says, up until now, all, see there's two major harvests, agriculturally in Israel. There's the tree and vine harvests, and there's the grain harvest. They have already had the tree harvest, and their seeds are already in the ground for the grain harvest. And over the next two and a half months, they are either going to get the rain, or they are not going to get the rain they need. And they've just taken in the fig tree, pomegranate, olive, and grape harvest, and it was not good. And now they've taken all the remaining seed left in their barn. There's no, there's no more reserve. And they've put it all in the ground. And whether or not they starve is going to, is going to come down to the next two months of rain. And that's where they are when this happens. When God says, everything you offer me defiles you. It doesn't help you. And Zechariah comes and he says, return to me and I'll return to you. This is about the heart. And they, and they say, what do they say? They say, we're getting exactly what, they, what we deserve. Think about this. If they don't get the reins in the next two months, they're going to starve. There may be somebody coming back to impale them on sticks. And they know, they know that they deserve nothing and that all the hardships that have happened to them is exactly what they deserve. What could God be totally just to do to them. Starve them half out until they all get killed for treason. It's totally justified. And they know it. And they admit it. It's totally justified. And he lets them <laughs> work under those conditions for months. Except for one thing. He encourages them. He comes in and he speaks through Haggai. And at the end of this whole, like, quit with the religious sacrifices, he says, now listen, on this day, this day when everything's going bad, when you're terrified, when things look like they're going to get worse, not better, I want you to mark this day. This day where you say, okay, okay, I'm yours. That's it. That's all there is to it. I'm sick of playing games. I'm sick of running. I'm yours. That's all. He said, you mark this day. I've been telling you to give careful thought to your ways. You know what he says here? Set your heart upon your paths. You know what he says here? Set your heart upon this day. You draw a line because it's, it's going to go different from here on out. From this day, from this repentance, and from that action of obedience to start to build the temple, you mark this day. It is going to be different. He says, from this day, I will bless you. And it's kind of hilarious what happens, right? They, they, the grain crop goes decently well, right? And then they're building the temple, and word comes back, um, word comes back from the court as to, um, as to what's supposed to be done with these people. 
And you can find this in Ezra 6.3 and following. And, th- and this is what it says, and I've, I've taken out some things that aren't of specific interest to this, but this is Ezra 3 and following. So, so King Darius, this is his decision. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Now then, Tatnai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai, these are the guys that came in and took names, and your other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work of the temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders and the Jews in the construction of this house of God, their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues, get this, from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam will be pulled from their house, and they are to be impaled upon it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Okay, that's hilarious. Right? So these enemies that have been on their backs for 20 years, he explicitly says, get out of the city and leave them alone. Right? The temple that was a piece of junk that they, could, they, they had no idea how they could even complete it, they get word that, that the king's going to pay for it. Even more fun, think about the irony of this. A, cu- a few months before this, these people were offering sacrifices to buy God's favor. Think of what he's saying to them. Really? How about this? How about they all come from me? How about I make a pagan king get your enemies to pay for every sacrifice that will be offered at the altar? How about that? Just to show you, I don't need your money. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your rituals. I don't need any of that stuff. How about this? How about I'll provide all of it? Right? And then the very penalty that they, they could have received justly under the laws of Babylon is threatened to anyone who tries to stop them. And he puts in just a little, Darius puts in just a little twist, and their house will be made into rubble. I mean, that's, that's pretty funny. I think that's, I mean, can you imagine? But I think one of the things to recognize is that somebody had to be paying attention. One of the things that I find is because we're so skeptical about We're so skeptical about how there are other explanations for things that happen. It's very difficult for us to go, you know what? That was God. 
It's very difficult for us to draw a line and to go right there. And then to see something happen and to go, that's God blessing us. It, it feels self-important. It feels like we think we're better off than other people. It feels like we're not reasonable enough, not scientific enough. But God explicitly tells these people, listen, you draw a line, you mark this day, you watch what happens, and what happens is from me. And you see, I think, I think, and this is important because one of the things God says in chapter 2 is that the future is going to look worse but be better. And so it's not going to be God moving by everything going fantastic for everyone. That's, that's not, the blessings are not just nothing bad happens and everything good happens and so, woo. It's, it's not like that. There's still bad stuff that happens. There's still these tests and the other things happening. But there are other things that God does bring about. And if you're, if you're looking, you'll see them. And if you're not looking, you probably won't see them. And so you have to actively look and know what it would look like if God decided to bless, even if not everything you want to happen happens. Um, a, a little while back, Alexi, well, Alexi, made lemonade, and, and a few of us actually put in the egress window. But we put an egress window in my house. And um, Jerry Hohausen came, and we, you know, we're in a pile of mud and cutting this thing on the side. And we put this really nice egress window in our basement because Adam, our intern, wanted to, to stay down there. And about a week after we had finished putting this egress window in, um, there was a really heavy rain, which really should have been okay because we put, like, twice as much gravel in there. And, I mean, we cut it big. And, like, I mean, it should have been able to rain, like, for Noah to flow. And, but what we didn't realize was that one of our spouts that came down right there was dumping the water in a place that was getting behind the wood, and it was like funneling all the water from our roof into that one spot. And so I wake up in the morning, and Adam's coming. He's like, dude, uh, this isn't good. And we go downstairs, and there's water coming in. And you, on the window, there's a water line. You know, there's the water. And one of the things that we did is he's was like, quick, get like a chalk or something, and let's mark it where it is to see if this is getting better or if this is getting worse, right? And so I get my shop back, and we're like sucking up all this water and dumping it down the drain and like trying to get this done. And we look back, and the, and the water has gone up like this much, okay? And we're like, something is wrong. And so I ended up going outside, and we found this thing, and so we like pointed it in another direction, and then the water started to go down, and, and things kind of got under control. But, you know, we could have been there for hours and hours and hours with that shop back not realize there's just water coming, 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 coming. Because we didn't—if we didn't draw that line, that's a negative example. The, for the positive example here, you, you, you have to—you you know, it's kind of that whole, that whole issue of Zachariah back at Christmas time. He prays for something for 20 years. It happens, and he doesn't recognize it's from God. Or he can't even believe it'll happen, but he's prayed for it for 20 years. It's, it's atheism. It's religious atheism. And <clears throat> let me give you, a, let me give you a, a short example of this, and then— um, We'll end. Um, when, I don't know. I mean, some of you know this. Some of you don't know this. Some of you know this much even better than me. Um, when I arrived 18 or whatever months ago at High Point, um, one of the things that was a concern, had been a concern for a, quite a while, was just the financial state of the church. And, you know, I'm now the senior pastor. My church, when I was a, t a teaching pastor, I didn't care about the money. I didn't, as long as I just did ministry, didn't have to worry about that. And one of the things I don't really like is all the administrative stuff senior pastors have to deal with. And so we are just always on the edge, you know. And it was frustrating because I didn't like that. 
And so I remember praying about this and talking with some people and praying about it and, and thinking, you know, we just need to pray that God will provide more money. And I remember thinking, you know, that's really not the right, it's not the right thing. And after a week or so of thinking about this, um, I really felt led that what we needed to do was, as a staff particularly, we needed to pray, how could we become the kind of staff and how could I become the kind of shepherd that God would actually want to give any of his resources to? Maybe that's the problem. So let's start with that. So instead of praying for more money, let me pray, God, will, how do you, how, will you make me the sort of shepherd that you would even want to give any, maybe any of your money to? And secondly, instead of thinking, how could the congregation of High Point help the organization that is High Point? What if we reverse that? Well, how could the organization that is High Point Church, as an organization, help and be a blessing to the congregation that is High Point, the church? And as we talked about that, we started talking about, well, what can we do to help people with their finances rather than ask for more of their finances? And so that's the reason why that last January we started the FPU class. And we, and we put out an enormous amount of effort. And I was out a whole other night per week, and a lot of people who I see you out there, you came and you did childcare for like 50 kids in the gym for that whole class. And we've done now, and while we're now in our three class, you can still get in if you want to. Of just, and, it, and it doesn't have like a strong giving thing in it. Like, you know what, you should give a lot to your church. It's just like, here's how you do your finances. Here's how you can become financially free. And a hundred and some people went through that. And it was a lot of work. And we actually put out money for it. <laughs> and that was, that was hard, in a sense, from a leader's perspective. But as a staff, we were praying through this. How can we be that kind of how can we be that kind of leaders? How can we be a blessing rather than expect them to be a blessing to us? How, how does that work? And about September, I was pretty much through that. And we were having a prayer meeting in here. We were praying for the start of gospel in life. And we prayed that God would provide $25,000 over our budget expense, which, which may sound crazy, but there were a lot more people. And so, and that totally didn't happen. Didn't happen for two more months. Didn't happen. And then, in November, it just did. And it was weird. And then what happened was, in December, we found out that we had $105,000 of stuff that just had to be fixed. It was like heating stuff. It was going to put carbon monoxide in the building, and all our kids were going to die. And, you know, it was like one of those gigs. It's just—it's all this stuff had to be done. And it was just like—and I just—it was just like a—it was like a number—it was like— a motorcycle gang taking turns punching in the stomach. It was just so frustrating because you're like, oh my gosh, we just got $25,000 of breathing room on an over a million dollar budget. And seriously, seriously, God, I mean, honestly, all this, because usually it's like one a year of these things breaks. And it was like 12 or 10. And I was just like, this is, this is, this is crazy. So there was $17,000 left in the building fund, right? Which didn't look like a lot, right? And so then there's this $25,000, right? And so that's all gone. And so, but what that meant was it put the total debt at, I think, 64. But we had to send our Christmas money to our missionaries, which is eight grand. So what that meant was, we're, at the end of the year, we were looking at $72,000. Now, the last year's year in giving was 38, right? <laughs> we're not going to make this. And so the elders, we're getting together, and we're like, okay, if people gave 42, then we could not buy this, and we could put this off, and we could stop heating that side of the building. And we, you know, like, I mean, that, I mean, we're starting to talk about, like, what are we going to do? Because we cannot expect our people to give this kind of money. That's just crazy. 
And so, so some of you remember just a month ago, you know, or two months ago, I got up here and I was like, listen, I'm just going to tell you what it is, and then we'll just do whatever we can, and then we'll just go from there. And then I made a joke about firing Lisa, remember that? <laughs> and, um, and then um, on, on January 8th, in the bulletin, um, we had the total for up through the end of December, and it was $72,556 or something like that. And that was great. I mean, we were all happy about it. But you see, you, you didn't see it like we saw it. As a staff who like, oh, for more than a year, it was, God, how can I take this step of faith? How can I, instead of doing, how, just doing that, how could I return to you so that you would return to me? And then, and then writing it in our journal and then going to this staff prayer meeting and saying, we're not going to pray that we get a bunch of money. Let's pray. How can we be a blessing and how can we be the kind of leaders? And then the next month came and the next month came and then this happened and then— and then, it, and then it got worse. A lot worse. And not for cool stuff. It wasn't like some amazing thing happened and like, yeah, okay, so there's money. It was like, it was heaters. Who wants to spend money on heaters? Right? Or like a pillar. I don't know if you know, a pillar was like more than half rotted through. We could all die. We had to fix that. It's fixed. But it got worse. But when that stuff happened, it was so sweet to us that when Gene told us in the office, John and Lisa and I and, and, and Adam, and we were all in there, and we were, we were happy about it because we would still have jobs. But we also, we, it also, the, there was joy. We were like, do you remember when you prayed this? And you remember when I said that? And, I, and we were like, oh, this is never going to happen. And then, then we prayed that. And then we went here. And we did this. And then we tried that. And then, we, and, then, and then this happened. And you could look at that and you could just say, look, it just happened. People didn't want the church to close or whatever and blah, blah, blah. blah. But you see, for us, we've been, draw, we've been drawing lines for a year. We've been, we've been looking. We've been hoping. We've been trying to figure out how to put all our trust in him and not anything else. And it was, it was, there was a lot of joy for us. And so, um, we need to realize, here's, 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 all, here's all that God wants. All that God wants is this. He just is saying, deal with the issue and then mark the day. That's it. Deal with the issue. Return to me, and I'll return to you. And mark the day. And I know it's terrifying, and it might get worse before it gets better. And it's not going to look great. It's going to look worse, but it's going to be better. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to, to do. In fact, for most of us, we're not going to be able to do it. We're just not going to be able to do it. At least until... We look to the one who trusted fully. To the one who a beam was taken out of somebody's house to impale him. When he had done nothing wrong, but had focused himself on the will of God to the point that his blessing was to die in order to give life to many. It, Jesus was the one who is himself the rebuilt temple. He is the one who would, 
who would take the impaling we deserve so that we could build and be part of the building God is making of a new people. It, it, he's the one who is treated like his heart wasn't given fully to God that, so that we could give ours fully to God. It, it, it's he that gave us what we needed. It's, it's he that ironically stole the resources that would have been taken from us from somebody else and poured them out on us that had, what had been stolen from us by our enemy is given back to us through his sacrifice. And if you will, if you will believe in and come to and lean on in full trust Jesus, the one crucified and risen for you, when you return to God in that way, he will return to you. Deal with the issue and mark the day. Because as much suffering as we are promised, and we are promised suffering and persecution, we are also promised that God rushes with all the passion of negative jealousy, with all that passion of intense love toward us, so that these basic needs of, is our grain going to grow? Are we going to die? That he cares for us. And if you mark the day, you will be able to see it. You'll see it individually, and there will be times when we'll see it together. It's going to look worse, but it's, it's going to be better. And if we deal with the issue, then you can mark the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for, um, thank you for your jealousy over us. We trust that in Christ, the message you gave these people is the same message of today. Um, help us to throw off the avoidance of irreligion and the deal-making of religion that should infuriate you, that should set us back, not pull us forward. And help us to do the only thing that we can do to deal with the issue of the heart and to return to you. And will you return to us? We trust your promise, and we pray that you would help us to give ourselves in full trust to Christ, to Jesus, the one, the one who demonstrates most perfectly the positive jealousy of his love in saving us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand with me?